ever. And Lord willing, I will never do it again. (laughs) This morning, I'm going to preach with a Band-Aid on my neck. Now, I know, I know the, the students, the young people are thinking, oh, boy, here comes one of those really creative illustrations. And I wish I could say that. It's not an illustration. Uh, six o'clock this morning, I'm shaving, cut myself. And you guys have good imagination? So just, just imagine with me your pastor bleeding <laughs> half to death. And I haven't cut myself shaving for I don't know how many years, and I could not stop the bleeding. So this is where your imagination kicks in. You ready? The rest of you can do this too. This is kind of for the students. So imagine your pastor sitting in front of his computer, bleeding out. <laughs> I got one hand. I got my right hand on, on my wound, and my left hand is typing, typing G-O-O-G-L. Are you with me? Thank you, Morgan. So, so I'm Googling how to, how to prevent myself from dying, right? <laughs> and here's what I find. Apply firm pressure over the wound. Get a Kleenex and press down on the point where the bleeding is most severe. Hold it for five minutes. So I should tell you, I'm doing all of this. I mean, I, I'm, I follow directions very carefully. If the bleeding stops... If the bleeding stops, clean the wound with hydrogen peroxide. That was fun. And an antibiotic antibiotic cream like Neosporin to prevent infection. (laughs) And this is where my day just went horrible. You don't want your name to be added to the list of men who had died from shaving. (laughs) If if necessary, apply a Band-Aid over the wound... Yes, you will look silly, but it's a small price to pay to learn the master and the fine art of shaving like your great-grandpa. <laughs> well, from time to time, we step out of our series, and obviously we've been in the book of Ephesians for many weeks now. And we're going to do that once again this morning, as today is New Year's Eve. And I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Psalms. Psalm chapter 111. Psalm chapter 111. He was a man who was filled with deep gratitude because God reached down to save him. When he was 72 years of age, he made the following lament. Such a wretch should not only be spared and pardoned, but reserved to the honor of preaching thy gospel, which he had blasphemed and renounced. The more thou hast exalted me, the more I ought to abate myself. This same man actually wrote his own epitaph. And I want to show you his tombstone. You won't be able to see it clearly, but let me read it for you. John Newton... Clerk, once an infidel and libertine, a servant of slaves in Africa, was by the rich mercy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith he had long labored to destroy. That, my friends, is quite an epitaph, is it not? John Newton... The, the author of probably the most well-known hymn in all of human history, Amazing Grace, is a classic example of a man who is filled to the brim with gratitude. And the thought struck me as I read this epitaph, as I read some other just amazing quotes by this man of God, the thought struck me, what if we all live like that? What if every man and every woman and every boy and every girl was filled to the brim with gratitude like John Newton? What effect would this kind of gratitude have on my family? What effect would it have on your family? What effect would this kind of gratitude have right here at Christ Fellowship in our church family? 
What effect would this kind of gratitude, this God-centered, gospel-oriented gratitude, what effect would it have on my friends? What difference would it make in the workplace? The title of the message this morning is An Attitude of Gratitude. Walking on the narrow path of thanksgiving in 2018. Now, I'm convinced that we have, we have gotten lazy. I'm convinced that we have grown accustomed to be anything but grateful. Instead of being filled with gratitude like John Newton, we are quick to condemn. We are quick to complain. We are quick to mumble. We are quick to grumble. Would you not agree with me that we are a moaning, groaning, droning kind of a people? We don't like the weather. (laughs) Sorry. We don't like our unique set of circumstances. We don't like our families in some cases. We don't like our friends. We don't like our schools. We don't like the food before us. We don't like our politicians. We don't like our, our heroes anymore in some cases. We have grown accustomed to being a complaining people. And the net effect of our ungodly attitudes slowly begins to poison our relationships and also begins to pollute our church family. Simply put, ingratitude leaves us bitter, angry, cynical, and depressed. Have you ever known an older person who is filled with ingratitude? It's quite a sight to behold. But on the other hand, have you ever known an older man or an older woman who is filled with gratitude? I was just sharing with my friend this morning, Tom Junkmas, uh, about one of my friends who has gone to be with the Lord. And during the the really uh, difficult days at Christ Fellowship that we endured a couple of years ago, I remember my friend called me. He said, David, how are you? I said, Don... (laughs) Not good. They're coming for me. Their guns are out. False accusations are flying in my direction. And I I gave him a whole laundry list of things that, that we were going through and I was going through. And Don responds with these words that I will never forget. Praise the Lord! And I literally went, praise the Lord? And he went, yes, praise the Lord. He says, that means you must be doing something right. Well, my friend Don was a man who was always filled to the brim, like John Newton, filled to the brim with gratitude. Instead of being cynical, instead of being bitter and angry and depressed, I'm convinced, and I hope that you'll agree with me, I'm convinced there's a better way. Now, to make sure that there's no misunderstanding... Please don't confuse what I'm going to share here in a few minutes with the power of positive thinking. Have you heard that one? This is not the kind of things that you'll hear in this community about about pulling up your bootstraps and being a self-made man or a self-made woman. And and you can do it if you have a, a good attitude. That has nothing to do with where we're going today. Rather... If we have any hope of developing an attitude of gratitude, it will require nothing less than the gospel message of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Michael Horton explains, Any form of doing the gospel is a confusion of categories. He says the law tells us what to do. The gospel tells us what God has done for us in Christ. I'm going to leave that up for a minute because that is a quote you might want to write down. That is a quote that I hope not only encourages you, but I hope it gets under your skin a little bit. Because I think we have also grown accustomed in the church to doing, 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 and forgetting all the while that Christ did it for us. This is the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so exactly what does this gospel-fueled gratitude of attitude look like? How exactly does the gospel invite us or lure us or entice us onto this so-called narrow path 
of thanksgiving. And please remember, it is a narrow path. Because if you will commit together, and and my prayer is that we will all get on the bandwagon today. If you will commit to get on the bandwagon to to walk that narrow path of being a a man or a woman of gratitude, you're going to stand out like a sore thumb. Because when the weather goes bad, when your circumstances go bad, when, when your relationships sour, when bitter providence enters your life, and you're able to say with my friend Don, praise the Lord, you're right in the sweet spot. You're right where God wants you to be. People are going to look at you like you're nuts. Like, like you have lost your marbles. But this is possible because of the power of the gospel. Psalm chapter 111. Will you stand with me as we read the first two verses out of respect for the authority of God's word? Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart in the company of the upright in the congregation. Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. Father, this morning, it's our great pleasure to open the word of God, to read the word of God, to meditate upon the precepts in this amazing book. God, I pray that you would uh, make us mindful of the power of the gospel today, that it is only the gospel that will fuel our resolve to be a people of thanksgiving. It is only by the power of the gospel that we can be filled with the gratitude that you call us to be filled with. And so, Lord, we recognize uh, right out of the chute that there is nothing that we can do in and of ourselves Without Christ, we can do nothing. And so, Lord, I pray that there would be a shift in, in many of our hearts and our minds, our attitudes, our affections, our attitudes today, as we explore what it means to be a person that is filled to the brim with gratitude. We give you the thanks in advance, and we ask God as we make a, a shift individually and in our families and in our church family, that you would enable us to, to be like shining stars in this community, that we will be examples to people in our community, to people in our uh, world, Lord, of what it means to be a person who is filled to the brim with gratitude, all because of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. For it's in his worthy name we pray. Amen. This morning, notice with me three gospel guideposts that lead us on the narrow path of thanksgiving in the year 2018. The first guidepost I want to to meditate upon with you is this. And that is the unceasing worship of God. You ask, how is it that we can be a people of gratitude? The first thing we need to, to wrestle with is this notion of unceasing worship of God. We look once again at Psalm 111, verse 1, the first three words. The psalmist begins beautifully and simply. He says, praise the Lord. And what I want to do with, uh, with you for the next few minutes is take you on just a, a very short journey. This will not be comprehensive, but a very short journey of worship both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. I want to help you understand what does it mean to praise the Lord. When I was a youth pastor, I used to pull tricks on students. Some of them were just for fun. Others of, of them were for learning. And this particular trick was to teach the students to learn about worship. I would say on 6 o'clock, and we would come together as a youth group on Sunday evening, I would say, Hey, guys, how many of you guys want to worship tonight? And it was, usually, it was usually the guys, I have to admit. The guys would go, eh, no, we don't want to worship. We want to go play volleyball. Said, have you all learned anything? Like, you don't want to worship? Like, are you kidding me? Don't you realize that's the purpose? You're alive? And you want to play volleyball? Forgetting all along that playing volleyball is an act of, help me, worship, Right? 1 Corinthians 10.31, whatever you do, whatever you eat or drink or play volleyball or play racquetball or play golf, do all to the glory of God. So 
It's a trick question because when I say, do you want to worship tonight? Here's what the typical 14-year-old is thinking. He's going to make us sing again. And I, I have to get the 14-year-olds off the hook because that's also what the typical 40-year-old and 50-year-old and 60-year-old and 70-year-old is thinking as well. We're going to have to sing again. And I don't like to sing. Well, please understand that when the psalmist says, praise the Lord, he does include singing, the act of singing, but he also means everything else. Because whatever you do, whether, it's, whether you eat or drink, do it all to the glory of God. Now, the Old Testament has a really a rich assortment of words that remind us about the importance of unceasing worship. There are six words I want to review with you. We're going to do this quick, and please don't be intimidated by the Hebrew. I'm going to give you a Hebrew word. I'm going to define it and make some practical application in a few minutes. The first word that we see in the Old Testament is the word shakad. Shakad. It means this. It means to bow down. We see this in Exodus 34, verse 8. The word of God says, and Moses quickly bowed, that's shakad, he bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. Psalm 66, verse 4. All the earth worships you and sings praise to you. They sing praises to your name. Here the psalmist is referring to the act of bowing down. Let us go to his dwelling place, Psalm 132 says. Let us worship at his footstool, shakad. The second word I want you to meditate on just for a moment is the Hebrew word abad. Abad, and it means this. It means to serve God. Are you a worshiper? Do you have a passion to serve God? Exodus 3.12, that beautiful exchange with, with God and Moses. He said, but I will be with you, and this shall be a sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, God says, you shall serve God on the mountain. You shall worship God on the mountain. The third word I want you to look at for a moment is the Hebrew word yare. Yare, and it means to fear or revere. Joshua chapter 4. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over, as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us until we passed over, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear God forever. The fourth word is the Hebrew word ruim. It means to rise up. It means to be high. It's a word that means to, to be lofty. Psalm chapter 34 verse 3 says, Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. The fifth word, zamar. I always like that word for some reason, just zamar. It means to sing. It means to praise. It means to make music Psalm 21, verse 13, be exalted, Zamar, be exalted, O Lord, in your strength. We will sing, praise your power. Now, the sixth word is the one I want to focus on just for a moment longer. And the reason is because the sixth word is the very first word in Psalm chapter 111, verse 1. What is that word? It's the word praise, isn't it? The word praise. That Hebrew word means this. It means to shout. It means boastful praise. And I find it fascinating the way the, the Lord works out the details. And if you don't know this, it happens all the time. You don't know how many times Chris Veldman has come to me and said, Boy, the young people are going to think we're in cahoots because what I taught in junior high is what the message was about. Or... One of the other teachers or someone's, someone in women's ministry, right? They'll come and they'll say, have you been reading my email? Like, what's going on here? Here's what I mean. This morning, 
While Jason knew what the text was, he had no idea that I would be focusing a bit of attention on the word hallelujah. 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 All I have is Christ. The word praise means hallelujah. The word praise actually comes from a Latin word that means value or price. Therefore, to give praise to God is to proclaim the greatness of his worth. When you say hallelujah, by the way, be careful the way that you use the word hallelujah. Because when you say hallelujah, you're praising the worth of God Almighty. Many terms are used to express this in the Bible, including glory and blessing. And here's what's interesting to me. It's also associated with the word thanksgiving. It's associated with the word thanksgiving. The Hebrew title of the book of Psalms or praises comes from the same root as hallelujah. And Psalm chapter 113 through 118 have been specifically designated as the Hallel Psalms. That is to say, they are designated as the praise Psalms. And so Psalm 111 verse 1 says, Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. Now, I want to move quickly to the New Testament. We looked at six Hebrew words for worship in the Old Testament. Let me, let me give you three more words in the New Testament. The first word, and by the way, we're going to shift from Hebrew to Greek. And once again, don't get, hot up, don't get caught up in the terminology or get intimidated by the words. But for those of you who are interested, here they are. Proskuneo. Proskuneo, and it means, and I love this, it means to kiss the hand as a token of reverence. You know very well the exchange that took place between the Lord Jesus Christ and the woman at the well in John chapter 4. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from, from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will proskuneo the Father. They will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to proskuneo him, to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him, same word, must worship him in spirit and truth. And so I would ask, is worship a command? It certainly is. The second word, sabantai, sabantai, which means to worship with a feeling of awe, adoration, or devotion. In Matthew 15, verse 9, Jesus says, in vain they do worship me, teaching the doctrines, the commandments of men. And then there's a final Greek word I would have you look at carefully, and that is the word laturantes, which means divine service. And this should sound familiar. We look at the Old Testament word that means service, and now we go to the New Testament and see there's a, a word that is translated worship or divine service there. Philippians chapter 3, verse 3. For we are the circumcision who worship, there's the word, by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Some of you know that my favorite Puritan writer, outside of Jonathan Edwards, of course, is Thomas Watson. And Watson referred to hallelujah or the act of worship in these terms. He said, praising God is one of the highest acts and purest acts of religion. In prayer, we act like men. In praise, we act like angels. Listen, you will wander aimlessly. You will wander without purpose in this life apart from the worship of Almighty God. 
Isaiah 43 verse 7 says that we are created to glorify the living God. We are created to be worshipers. God created us to worship. We were made to worship. We exist to worship. And so when years ago, when I would say to the young people, who wants to worship tonight? Oh, we don't want to do that. We don't want to sing. See, we want to explode our understanding of worship. That we, whatever we do, whether we eat or drink, we do it all for the glory of God. I, I don't know anyone who said it any better than C.S. Lewis on this matter. He said, we are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what, what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. And I would contend with you that evangelicals all over the world are like Little children sitting in a slum, playing with their mud pies, when all along God Almighty is offering all of his riches, all of his blessings, the delight of knowing him. But we're too fascinated with the things of the world. We're like a mud pie. We're like a child playing with a mud pie in the slums. We're far too easily pleased. Well, the antidote you see for grumbling and complaining then, if you're wondering, is none other than worship. If you say, Pastor, how how do I get out of this mode where all I do is complain? I bicker, I complain, I moan, I groan, I don't like all of these. How do I move away from that? And the answer is one word. Worship. What does it look like? It begins with personal worship. Worship, time alone with God, time in the word of God, time to to pray to God Almighty. One of our elders, he's not here this morning. I did not get his permission to share this story, so I'll leave him faceless and nameless. But he came to me a few weeks ago as we were talking about some things that were happening into the church. And he began to describe his wife. And this is a conversation I will not soon forget. He began to describe his wife and the intimacy that she enjoyed with the Lord. He said, she's so excited every morning to wake up. She, can't hardly, she can hardly wait to see what the Lord has for her. I want you to think about that. If I were to say at Christ Fellowship, we're going to focus on a strong devotional life this year. How many of you would think, oh boy, here we go again. One of those challenges, right? But think about my friend's wife. She can hardly wait to get out of bed, put on her robe, put on her slippers, get to the kitchen table, pour a great big cup of coffee, because that makes everything better. And ask God, what do you have for me today? It might be in Leviticus. It might be in Lamentations. It might be in the Gospel of John. It might be in Philippians. But you're going to find it in the Word of God. You'll find it in the Word of God. What does this worship look like? It begins with personal worship. We continue with family worship where we spend time talking about God together. Reading the word of God, spending time in prayer together. That extends out into corporate worship with the people of God. And here we have an amazing time of worship, not only here in our morning worship time, but all the other activities spread throughout the week where we're able to come and and seek the living God. Let me give you, by way of practical application, and I would encourage you to jot these down, four specific things that we should be about as we pursue God in worship. Number one, consistent attendance. Say, oh boy, this, can someone turn on the air conditioning? Wait, we don't have air conditioning. Consistent attendance. Why is that important? Hebrews chapter 10 says to be very careful that you don't neglect the assembly of the fellowship. So let me encourage you, come to church. Come to church consistently. Secondly, active participation. Don't just sit passively. Have your Bible open. Have a pen handy. Get ready. 
Be prepared to worship the living God. Number three, have a sharp mind. What do I mean? It means be prepared to listen, be prepared to learn, be prepared to take in what God has for you. Finally, have a soft heart. Are you receptive? Are you teachable? Are you coachable? Are you ready to hear these mighty truths from the word of God? Well, the first gospel guidepost that will lead us on this narrow path of thanksgiving is the unceasing worship of God. Look at the second guidepost with me. Unhindered thanksgiving to God. Unhindered thanksgiving to God. Again, Psalm 111, verse 1. Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart in the company of the upright in the congregation. Charles Haddon Spurgeon counseled to maintain an inward spring of thanksgiving is one of the best ways to keep yourself in spiritual health. That's a keeper. One of the best ways to determine if you are a healthy follower of Jesus is to ask, am I a thankful follower of Jesus? I want you to see two things as we walk through this second guidepost. And the first is the act of thanksgiving. What does it mean? Well, in Psalm 111, we see the Hebrew term give thanks, translated give thanks, means this. It means to express praise. It means to make a public confession of the attributes and the acts of power of a person. Would you hold your finger in Psalm 111 and turn back in the Old Testament to the book of 1 Chronicles with me? And I want to have you take a look at several individual verses in 1 Chronicles beginning in chapter 16. 1 Chronicles chapter 16 beginning in verse 4. Then he, or David, appointed some of the Levites as ministers before the ark of the Lord to invoke, to thank, there's our word, to thank and to praise the Lord, the God of Israel. Verse 8, David says, O give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples. Verse 34, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Now flip with me to 1 Chronicles chapter 29. 1 Chronicles chapter 29, and read with me in verse 13. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. One additional verse I want you to think about is in Psalm 35, verse 18. You don't need to turn there, but the passage reads, I will thank you, speaking of God, I will thank you, God, in the great congregation, in the mighty throng, I will praise you. Will you go back to Psalm 111? And here the psalmist says, I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart in the company of the upright in the congregation. Do you see the common thread? The common thread is simply this, that thanksgiving is usually spoken out loud in the context, and please don't miss this, it's spoken out loud in the context of community. So it should come as no surprise that the psalmist expresses his thanksgiving to God in the company of the upright in the congregation. Now, some of you may wonder, does that mean that thanksgiving can't happen in your closet? It can't happen in your bedroom. It can't happen when you're on your way to work. Of course not. Thanksgiving is not limited to the congregation. But it does tell us this. It does tell us this. When we neglect a time of corporate thanksgiving, we do so at our own peril. When my family lived in La Grande, we lived there for over 11 years, we quickly discovered that there was an attitude that dominated, dominated Eastern Oregon. Kyle and Kathy, you're going to be very familiar with this attitude as they live there as well. 
The attitude was, went something like this, and it usually came from men. Sometimes women, but mostly men. The attitude went like this. I don't need to go to church. I can worship God in the in the hills. I don't need to go to church. I can worship God in the mountains. We heard it all the time. But let me challenge the notion of skipping church to worship God in the mountains. I want to show you the folly, the utter, I know I'm on thin ice, foolishness of such a notion. Let me ask you a question. You don't need to raise your hands, but how many of you have ever watched a movie all by yourself? You just watch, and it turned out to be one of your top five. I, I can't tell you how many times I've watched a movie and it was this unbelievable movie. And I'm by myself and you know the feeling. Man, I wish Doreen was there. Man, I wish Abby or Nathan were there. Oh, oh what a film. Have you ever eaten a steak dinner with all the trimmings all by yourself? Have you ever watched the Mariners turn a, a double play? Or a triple play all by yourself? Have you ever watched a sunset all by yourself? Now, you think about each one of these instances, and I I hope one of them will tug at your heartstrings, whether it's food or sports or the entertainment industry or a sunset. Recognize that in each of these illustrations, the answer of Did you receive pleasure? The answer is always in the affirmative. Yes, I enjoyed the sunset while I watched it by myself. I enjoyed the movie while I watched it by myself. About a month ago, I had the opportunity to go to a concert in Seattle. And I've quickly learned since moving here that no one likes music that I like. So guess what I get to do? I go by myself. So Dreen says to me, she says, honey, she goes, you don't need to go to Seattle and, and go by yourself. I'll drive down with you. We'll meet your parents. We'll have dinner together while you go to the concert by yourself. <laughs> we'll go have fun, right? <laughs> and they did. They had fun. So this is me at, at the concert, this band from Wales, who I've followed since my high school years. And I, I'm just ready to see him. Yeah, yeah, right? Me all by myself. Rockin'. Now, do you think I enjoyed myself? Oh, it was incredible. It was incredible. But if I had a buddy with me who loved that band, it it would have blown the experience out of the water. You see, when you're with your loved one, when you're with your wife, Your boyfriend, your girlfriend, your son, your daughter, your grandpa, your grandma, your mom, your dad. Someone who has that common interest with you. You not only double your your pleasure, it explodes. Your joy is intensified a thousand times over when you watch a sunset, for instance, in the presence of someone you love. The act of thanksgiving, by definition, then, calls us to do so in the context of community. Is anyone with me? You see, do we thank God on our own? Yes, we must thank God on our own. But if we limit it, if we limit our thanksgiving to God only between me and him, and we never come to church and experience the joy of covenant community, we miss out. We miss out. And so here's the question I receive. Aren't you being legalistic? It's, it's, the completely, it's a completely fabricated question. This has nothing to do with legalism. This has to do with joy. This has to do with joy. Move with me from the act of thanksgiving to the art of thanksgiving. Notice what Psalm 111 verse 1 says. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart in the company of the upright in the congregation. We give thanks to the Lord, not with a half a heart, not with three-fourths of a heart, not with seven-eighths, but with a, a whole heart. I remember a pastor once, he shared this illustration. You men, you, you buy a dozen roses for your wife. 
You show up at the door, and I, I don't know who invented this. You always hide it behind your back. She can see them, right? I always do that when I get flowers for a drink. She sees them. It's just fun, I guess. And you spring them. And you say, honey, I just want you to know that I love you with two-thirds of my heart. Right? Your spouse wants it all. Your spouse wants your whole heart, undivided allegiance, undivided attention, undivided affection. And so does God. He wants the whole heart. Now, the Hebrew word translated heart, leb, is the sum total of who a person is. It's your mind, it's your soul, it's yourself, it's the essence of who you are. Jonathan Edwards says, if the great things of religion are rightly understood, they will affect the heart. And so Paul the, Paul the, Apostle, Paul the Apostle gives an example of this. He was constantly giving thanks, wasn't he? I mean, watch when you read through the pages of the New Testament. Watch Paul giving thanks. 1 Corinthians 15. But thanks be to God. He gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 2, but thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. Ephesians 5, we'll get there maybe in 2020. Giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Colossians 1.12, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Colossians 3.17, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. 1 Thessalonians 5.18, give thanks in all circumstances. You see the pattern. Paul was a man who was devoted to, to giving thanks to the living God. The word of God is abundantly clear on this matter. As the people of God, we are called to give thanks. Specifically, we are called to give thanks to God Almighty, but we are also called to maintain what I like to refer to as a disposition of thankfulness. And so can you identify this morning areas in your life where you are withholding Thanksgiving from God. Maybe it's your health. You are ticked. Or maybe it's your marriage. Or maybe it's a a, a divorce. Or maybe it's the school that you attend. Or the, the job that you have. Or your general life situation. Remember Spurgeon's wisdom. He says to maintain an inward spring of thanksgiving. Is one of the best ways to keep yourself in spiritual health. I don't do this an awful lot. I want to do this today as a way to apply what we're learning practically. I want you to think about the whole range of your life, health, relationships, future, job, the whole ball of wax, and to ask yourself and to ask God, God, is there any area I'm withholding thanks from you? And I want to have you bow your heads and close your eyes and do business with God. The sermon is not over, but I want to have you do business with God and say, God, this is an area that I have been withholding thanks to you over the last week, month, year, maybe my whole life. And today I repent. I do an about face and I say, God, I don't understand what you're up to, but I want to offer unhindered thanksgiving to you, God. Let's pray together. Father, whatever it is, I pray that the people in this congregation would have the courage to admit, to recognize an area of thanksgiving that they have withheld from you. May the repentance be genuine. May it happen in an authentic way and may it be a a transforming thing in the life of of someone today. May it be multiplied all throughout the sanctuary. In Jesus' name, amen.
unceasing worship of God, unhindered thanksgiving to God, or the first two guideposts that will keep us on this narrow path in 2018. But there's a, a final guidepost, namely, unimpeded learning about God. Unimpeded learning about God. Psalm 111, verse 2. Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. I want to make three basic observations and have you mull them over this morning. The first is I want you to see the priority of learning. If you look at verse 2, it's clear here that the Hebrew word for study or studied means the process of discovery. It means to seek out. It means to investigate. It means to examine something. This term can also be translated as search or, or seek after. And so 1 Chronicles 16.11 says, Seek the Lord and His strength. Seek His presence continually. But somewhere along the way, and, and I don't know where it happened, where it happened or how it occurred, but people began to make this lament. Learning is boring. I think it happened in third grade. That's where it starts for everyone. Learning is boring. It's too hard. It takes too much time. I don't, this is the big one, especially in this culture, this video culture that we live in. I don't like to read. It's boring. Can I say from my heart to the people of God, if you don't like to read, learn to like to read. My personal testimony is for years, I, I hated the discipline of reading. I didn't like it. I'll never forget. I was in my bedroom. I was 19 years of age. I was a youth intern at the church. It was about 1130. My dad knocked on the door. He came in. Son, what's going on? I'm working on the lesson for tomorrow. At 1130 on Saturday? Oh, yeah. He says, how often do you do this? Oh, pretty much every week. See, I was the kind of youth intern was a youth pastor who loved to take students bowling and go to Mariner games, go to the park and shoot hoops and play tennis and have a blast. I was very relational, right? And my dad came a bit closer and he said, son, if you don't like to learn, if you don't like to study, if opening the book doesn't excite you, you better change your, your vocation. And I remember in the back of my mind thinking, I don't like that he said that. It, it kind of ticked me off. But as I thought about it, and it didn't take very, very long, he was right. And so I began a process of learning the discipline of reading. Those of you that know me well know that something happened. Because now I, I love to read and I love to study. I love to open the book. I love to read good Christian books. I'd love to read good novels. You give it to me, I'll read it, right? But in the Christian life, if we're going to grow, develop a love for reading. This is the priority of learning. Second, I want you to see the pursuit of learning. The pursuit of learning is clearly marked out in verse 2. We see that it is the Lord is the one we pursue. We don't read so we can say we read the books, per se, we read to say that we are pursuing God. Great are the works of the Lord, says the psalmist. For the Lord your God is in your midst, a great and awesome God. Deuteronomy 7.21. Psalm 99.3. Let them praise your great and awesome name. If you saw the list I have, you would say, we're going to go until 2 o'clock. God is great. God is good. We're to pursue him. He is the one we are to pursue. And I need to tell you this. Once the pursuit of learning grips your heart, once you begin to understand that the object of your quest is God, the eternal, infinite, sovereign God, you will experience, some of you, maybe for the first time, the pleasure of learning. And there's nothing like it. You'll never go back. That leads to the pleasure of learning. Greater the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in him. That's a word that means pleasure or joy. 
Simply put, when you commit yourself to learning about God, your priorities begin to shift. One writer says, as the the believer lives in response to this new disposition in his heart, he finds delight in meditating on God's glorious character. And this delight expresses itself in gratitude for who God is and what God has done. My conviction is this. It is time for the people of God to overcome every obstacle to overcome every barrier that gets in the way of discovering the pleasure of learning. How do we do it? Well, let me give you a couple practical ways to do this. Number one is acknowledge a fundamental reality of the Christian life, which is this. Learning about God is not optional. Learning about God is not optional. Optional. It is absolutely essential. You remember in John chapter 17, Jesus prayed this prayer. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That is the pursuit of God, knowing God. Eternal life, by the way, is not going to heaven. Eternal life is knowing God. Going to heaven is a fringe benefit. Eternal life is knowing God and His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Number two, make a commitment to learn about this great God. And as R.C. Sproul went to be with the Lord not too many days ago, I can encourage you to read one of the greatest books of the last hundred years, The Holiness of God by R.C. Sproul. Read it. You'll never be the same again. Make a commitment to learn about this great God. A practical way to make this learning commitment is to take advantage of one of the the opportunities here at Christ Fellowship. We're here in morning worship. That's a great way to pursue this great God. Veritas. I want to encourage you, if you're not attending a Veritas class, we have three classes we're offering right now for adults. We have a class for junior hires, a class for high school students, a class for, for the younger children in JAM. These are great ways to make a commitment to learning. Justin, I'm so glad that you and Katie are here this morning. Justin and Katie have established a team of adults around them to help in the jam ministry. My friends, this is an absolutely crucial ministry at Christ Fellowship. Because what Justin and Katie are doing along with their staff is they're, they're teaching young people the importance of going after God. And if you talk to one of the children, you see something is happening. It's exciting. This is the groundwork that that Ken Olsen laid for many, many years with his staff. And Justin and Katie are picking up that baton. So Justin and Katie, I want to, from the bottom of my heart, thank you for your faithfulness, your diligence, your, your passion for this ministry. Iron Men, Women's Bible Study. These are all ways that you can go after God together. I'm going to close here by giving a few personal comments. Some of you know the impact that John Piper has had on my life. He has encouraged me for over 30 years to have an attitude of gratitude. And I was reminded of his influence in my life when I read a recent tweet. This just happened a few days ago. And I'll read it for you. He says, reasons not to complain... After five hours sitting in a Delta airplane on the runway in Atlanta. Totally comfortable AC. Restrooms that work. Drinking water. Endless video options, including NFL. I still can't believe John Piper said anything about the NFL. Good lighting to read good books. That one made more sense to me. Uncomplaining passengers, invincible Romans 8, verse 28. As we move into 2018 as a church family, I want to encourage you to walk together on the narrow path of gratitude. The three gospel guideposts that will lead us on the narrow path are unceasing worship of God, unhindered thanksgiving to God, An unimpeded learning about God. As I wrote this sermon a few weeks ago, I 
had something deep down in my heart that wanted to express or, or give an opportunity for some of these thoughts to, to take root in your life. And so I've had several conversations, and those of you will remember these conversations. People, those of you who say, Pastor, we like those challenges those challenges that you've been given to read something for a month or do this for several weeks or whatever it might be. So we're going to pull out the big guns and call this the 2018 challenge. It's not a month challenge. It's not a three-month challenge. This is a 12-month challenge. And it's a big one, but it's also very easy. Gary, you're going to love this. This is just right up your alley. Pat, oh boy. And I think the rest of you will love it as well. I want to challenge you to daily, beginning tomorrow, to write one thing that you're thankful for. I mean, it can be as simple as you get up tomorrow morning and you look outside and you see the beautiful sunshine and you write sunshine. I'm grateful for sunshine. I haven't seen it for quite some time. I'm grateful for my family. I'm grateful for my friends. There's a million things you could say. In 1986, my favorite professor and my tennis coach at Multnomah University went to be with the Lord. He was in his mid-50s. I've shared this with some of you. I used to tell people before he died that when I get to be Hugh's age, which I am now, I hope I look like him and act like him and I'm a godly man like him. But Hugh used to run four miles every day. That was his that was his thing. He'd run four miles, he'd get home, he'd have a big cup of coffee, he'd read the newspaper, he'd have his devotions, and he'd pray for his tennis team. And one day his heart skipped a beat, and he went into the presence of the Lord. This totally healthy man. God God took him in his prime. And his wife, a dear woman, Freddie Salisbury, I remember having a conversation with her, and she was She was filled with grief, as you might imagine. And she struggled. She was lonely. She was filled with grief. And she said to me, she says, Dave, I I didn't like the direction my life was going after Hugh died. I didn't like what was happening in my heart. And so I resolved every day I would wake up and I would think to myself of at least one thing that I'm thankful for. And I talked to her several months after that initial exchange. And I said, Freddie, are you still doing the Thanksgiving thing? Oh, she said, absolutely. She says, I I will do it until I go home to be with the Lord. She says, it's as simple as if I look out my kitchen window and I see the first robin in the spring. Say, God, I'm, I'm thankful for the first robin in the spring. I'm thankful for this. I'm thankful for that. And I want to challenge you to, to do that over the course of 2018. And most of you should have received this great jar that Carmel and some of the ladies put together for you that we passed out at the Thanksgiving bank with the family gratitude jar. Starting January 1, 2018, write the good things that happen on small pieces of paper and put them in this jar. And there's several ideas that is listed on the jar. I want to give you one additional thing to think about doing. This is what I'm going to personally do is I'm going to keep a journal on my computer and every day write down something I'm thankful for. And then I'm going to print that Thanksgiving out and stick it in the jar. What would happen at Christ fellowship? If we all did this, this is exciting. I don't know if I've been this excited in quite some time is if we collectively come together and say we will determine before God Almighty to write down one thing we're thankful for. And whether you put it in the jar or keep it in your computer or keep it in your journal or keep it in your shoebox. If you're a Presbyterian, you'd put it in your cigar box. (laughs) Wherever you put it, imagine at the end of the year the, the, the testimonies that we could share with one another. And so here's my challenge by way of practical application. If you're willing to take this challenge, I want to have you tomorrow morning to wake up. Some of you will be later in the morning, right? Okay, yeah. admit it. When you wake up and you write down whatever it is you're thankful for, would you send me an email? You don't have to write a book. You don't have to write a term paper. Just say, dear Pastor Dave, I'm thankful for the beautiful deer that I saw this morning. 
I'm thankful for my salvation. I'm thankful for my wife. I'm thankful for my husband. And I just want to get barraged tomorrow with dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of emails. Remember, don't write the book. I'm going to have time for the book. Just one word, one sentence, and that's going to be my indication. We're doing it. We're on board. We're going to do this together. One writer says we should begin each day by acknowledging our dependence and need for God by expressing our gratitude to God. The three great guideposts that will lead us on the narrow path are unceasing worship of God, unhindered thanksgiving to God, and unimpeded learning about God. At the end of nearly every message he preached, John Calvin would utter these words. And now, let us bow down before the majesty of our gracious God. Let's walk on this path together, this path of thanksgiving, and see where God leads our church family. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these words in Psalm 111. God, we're challenged to uh, give up our, our pettiness, our, our propensity to complain. And God, I pray that many here today would, would make a shift, that there would be a, really a revolutionary change, a, a, Coper, a Copernican revolution in our hearts where we would move from being ingrates to being filled with thanksgiving. And I pray that it would have a powerful effect individually in our families, in our church family, in our community. God, we recognize that these are, are not things that we do on our own. These are things that are informed and empowered by the gospel of your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So thank you, Jesus, for the hope that we have in you. Thank you that we have so much to be thankful for. May we be a people filled with this kind of gospel-centered thanksgiving in 2018. Amen.